Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Please be advised that Little Miss Recap contains adult language. I think it's the same drive that allows me to tell stories in books and on TV. Because let's face it, anybody who writes a book or goes on TV with the notion that they have a story worth telling that people might want to listen to you're really already, by definition now, a sort of an aberrant personality and a monster of self-regard. This is a very unreasonable attitude. I have a unique, I have a story that you will want to listen to for 10 minutes. Why would any reasonable, and I might make a living doing that. Some you might even want to pay for that story to the point that I could make a living doing that rather than washing dishes or, or, or preparing meals. That's not normal. Welcome to Little Miss Recap, the podcast where we get up at the crack of dawn to talk about our favorite chef and writer in the whole world. Yeah, we do. God, watching this just made me ache for him. He's so, he's everything. He's everything to me. He's brilliant. He's handsome. He's Mm -hmm. funny. He's worldly. He's, oh God. We'll get there. We'll get there. But today we're going to talk about Roadrunner, a film about Anthony Bourdain, and I'm your host. Amy Archer. And I'm here with the lovely Amanda Lipnack Radell. Hello, Amanda. Hello, Amy. Hello, friends. Uh, as I say, welcome to the show that never ends. I always feel like I want to like keep saying that, but our show mm-hmm. does end. So it does not quite. It right. does. And everybody's glad it does, I think. At Eventually. Some point. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so maybe some people want to listen to us all day, every day. Can't stop, won't stop. Can't stop, won't stop. Okay. So um let me open by saying that this film was well received when it came out. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about Roadrunner, a film about Anthony Bourdain. Twenty twenty one. It was on Max. It was in the theaters too. I saw it in the theater. I did not because I think that was during a time when we were still iffy about going to movie theaters. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, but yeah. Well, as you can imagine, I think we were the only two people in the theater. Probably, mm-hmm. probably. Mm-hmm. You're probably just fine. Uh-huh. The filmmaker was Morgan. Is Morgan Nelville. So this film was critically well received, but there was a problem. There was a okay. controversy. So he 
kind of brushed past the fact that he used AI twice in the film to reenact Anthony's voice. I thought that must have been mm-hmm. because I'm like, how are you getting a voice here? And for he this? claims it was only in two spots. One was to read, I think it was to read the emails that he had sent to um, Joel Rose. Okay. The initial email before he was famous. Right. And then there's another part where he said he fills it in a little bit. Now, he had said at the time, because people were freaking out about this, and he had said at the time, I checked with Tony's family. They're fine with it. Yeah. Octavia has said, nobody checked, nobody ran that past me. And I would not have been okay with it. Oh, interesting. So, and she would have been the closest next to kin at the time, right? Yeah. Yeah. He was never married. He never married Asia. Asia, who I always want to call Asia, Asia. Um, God, she was, she is beautiful. She's gorgeous, but problematic at best. <laughs> at best, yeah. I, to me, that feels like not a bad use of AI. If one is going to do it, um, because it's it's him reading his own words. Right, right. I think that AI was just so new at the time. Yeah. Yeah. To us, to the general public. I mean, sure. the tech AI has been around forever. Yeah, but it was due um, to filmmaking too. I mean, there was also the controversy of um, using Val Kilmer in Maverick. Oh, right, yeah, his voice and all that because he yeah. had no voice left. Yeah, because yeah, and yeah, then, but Val Kilmer on obviously consented to that. Yes, that. Oh, then there was also um, in the last Ghostbusters, mm-hmm. they did AI yeah. of um, Ivan Reitman. Mm. Okay. Anyway, it's it's a weird thing to think about. As someone who works in tech, AI is the only thing anyone's talking about right now. It's really annoying. I think I could tell immediately though when the AI was his voice because he had such enunciation and inflection when he spoke. Yes, you can't mirror that. No, I mean you could try, but couldn't. Then, no. Oh gosh. Okay. So. We're going to go through this. I have it kind of broken down in chunks. Okay. And before we jump into it, just, I do, we want to just put a trigger warning. Oh yeah, guys. I mean, we're going to be talking about suicide, death by suicide, suicidality. Intense depression, drug use. Yes. All of that. I mean, I think most people are aware that Anthony Bourdain took his own life, Um, but it's, it's, they talk a lot about his depression and his challenges mm-hmm. and just if that's not a thing you want to listen to it's okay yeah maybe you just want to go listen to like steph and i talk about married at first sight today maybe or, you do or, or maybe golden you batch. Just wanna, golden batch the last episode of golden batch i've listened to three times um <laughs> or maybe you just want to go watch an episode of parts unknown mm-hmm. be mm-hmm. back with anthony bourdain yes there you go there you go. But let's talk about. I have to say just personally what he meant to me. Like Timmy and I started dating in 2003 and he, I loved Anthony Bourdain and he loved Anthony Bourdain. And it just kind of, our worlds matched. Mm-hmm. We watched Parts Unknown constantly. We watched No Reservations constantly. And we always have this running joke that when I was very pregnant, he took me for my birthday to this little French restaurant by us. And okay. he was of course talking to the waitress. Cause he talks to everybody. And she was like, you remind 
remind me so much of Anthony Bourdain. And to this day, it's like the highest compliment anyone's <laughs> ever paid him. He whips it out all the time whenever he needs to. You know what I mean? And that's that mm-hmm. that is a compliment of the highest order. It to is someone of Tony Bourdain. Yeah, I I loved him forever too. I don't even remember how he came into my life, but he did. Mm-hmm. And loved him and my mother and I, for years, when I was single, we still did Thanksgiving and did all the things. We still made all the meal. I made all the meal. We would drink too much wine. And then CNN would, would always show on Thanksgiving night. Yep. Either it was a marathon of parts unknown or no mm-hmm. reservations. And we would just sit down on the couch after we ate and just watch Anthony Bourdain all night. Yeah. And yep. And it's funny because we'll get there, but I remember, I remember very clearly when he did that cooking competition show, Mm. that period of time where people were like, oh, he's selling out, but he wasn't. He was like settling down. I remember that very clearly. And Timmy and I were both like, what is he doing? (laughs) (laughs) But it's okay. But it's okay. All right. So we open with. Tony's words, which is a great way to frame this. You know, he's talking about when he dies and he's talking to Eric, I believe. Mm-hmm. And it's the the France episode. I love their friendship. I do too. Yeah. I do too. And he says when he dies, he wants nothing, no fanfare, just an announcement, unless it provides entertainment. Like if he could be shot out of a cannon into a crowd or something, <laughs> then he would be up for it. <laughs> I kind of feel the same way. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't need uh, any fanfare. I mean, yeah. I I don't need anything. I'll be dead. Correct, correct. Now, <laughs> I have two requests upon my death and I'm putting I'm committing them to tape right now. Okay. Um I am to be cremated and thrown onto a whale in California. Okay. And I want Timmy to mourn me forever. No moving on for him. No moving oh. on for him. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Wow. Wow. Okay. Um, if you could, if you could time it, which with my mother, I can take care of both of them because mm-hmm. she wants her ashes spread in Big Sur. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I could, I could go do both of these. I was thinking Monterey time. Bay. So you could hit Monterey Bay on the way down to Big Sur. There you gotcha. go. Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. Right. Stephanie has already committed to renting the boat and everything though. So you might have to take her with you. That's fine. I think okay. we'd have a good time. Okay. All right, so it's 1999, and I've kind of chunked, like I said, the story. And this chunk is when he's writing Kitchen Confidential. Okay. Okay, and which is an amazing book. I mean, I highly recommend to anyone who's never read it. I've only read parts of it, but I downloaded it the other night Mm -hmm. because it the I download the audio books. It's narrated by him. Oh, okay. Oh, I didn't know that. I might have to listen to that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um. As a writer, he is one of the biggest influences on my writing. I find that I tend to try to mimic him when I'm writing. Mm. I feel that he sees things the way I see things sometimes. I mean, he really just spoke to me as a writer and was a huge influence for me. Oh, I love that. Because he's in my, my field is creative nonfiction, and that's what he wrote. And yep. I feel like he's one of the best creative nonfiction writers out there. So Agreed. I love him. So he says, I just have this quote from him. Um, it's why chefs are all drunks. It's because we don't understand why the world doesn't work like our kitchens. Mm. And it's 1999. There's a film crew at Tony and Nancy's and Nancy Bourdain's apartment in New York. He says, I've always loved language. I use language to get out of trouble. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and, and he's so quick on his feet and so smart. He's so smart. So and I smart. didn't realize like how baked into him was his love of television. Yeah, I didn't either. And books. I mean, yeah. just growing up, you know. So he says his early heroes were writers and musicians, and he describes himself as antisocial, says he started writing in 1993, and we see him go to Joel Rose's house. Now, this is how he got his start in yep. writing. And again, there's a little bit of nepotism here, guys. Okay. There just yeah. is. Yeah. Anthony Bourdain's mother was a an editor. Like copy he, editor. He came. Mm -hmm. He didn't come from incredible means, but he was solidly upper middle class. Like, But I can tell you at this time in the 90s, people were throwing money at authors to write memoirs. It was sure. the height of the memoir. It was when Mary Carr wrote Lit, if you remember that. Bev mm -hmm. D'Onofrio wrote Riding Cars with Boys. It was this period of time where you could get a memoir because they were just kind of coming onto the scene and everybody yep. could get one. Yeah. So he was he was in Tokyo on business and he started writing Joel like a series of emails. And Joel was so impressed he printed them out, handed them to his wife Karen Rinaldi, who was like she was in publishing, and she's like, Here's a book deal. Like, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> but before you get that, a book deal and you get a book deal. Everybody gets a book deal. But before that, he had had, and I don't know if you ever read this. I actually teach this in my creative writing class. In 1999, he had, because um, Kitchen Confidential comes out in the spring of 2000. So in 1999, he had a very successful article in the New Yorker, thanks to his mother. Okay. Okay. Called Don't Eat Before Reading This, A New York Chef Spills Some Trade Secrets. And it's a oh, great piece I'll, in the New Yorker. It it's really good. First line, good food, good eating is all about blood and organs, cruelty and decay. It's about sodium-loaded pork fat, stinky triple cream cheeses, the tender thymus glands, and distended liver livers of young animals. It's about danger, risking the dark bacterial forces of beef, chicken, cheese, and shellfish. It's great. <laughs> it's great. And it it revealed, it did really well and put him on a lot of editors' radars. Mm -hmm. Because sure. first of all, to get a piece in The New Yorker was, you know. But his he had written the piece. He had sent it to his mother to copy edit. She worked at the New York Times at the time. Mm -hmm. And she did think it was great and passed it along. Like, it wasn't like she was like, oh, just publish this because it's my son. I right. mean, he was talented. Oh, incredibly. Yes. Incredibly. So, <clears throat> so that's my little writing rant. Okay. Okay. Cool. So um, he had, he said, she, Karen tells us that she he came up with the title, Kitchen Confidential, and he had eight months to write it. And it's so strange to me. And you can speak to this way more than I can. I've not written anything extensive in my life, but eight months sounds so short and yet so long to write something. I mean, I've been working on my second book for five years. Right. I know. <laughs> yes. I know that that's if that you works. get a bad advance and you have oh. nothing to do but write that book. Sure. I mean, I think he was still working as a chef at the time, though. He was. He was still at Leal. Yeah. So yeah. I don't know. How do you say it, Leal? Leal, yeah. Leal. Um, so his agent is Kim Witherspoon, and she says, Tony Tony was just, he was not afraid of failing. And, of course, that's that boomer white man confidence. Exactly. He's just <laughs> like, I can do anything. That's right. Well, he It's it. so amazing to me because I feel like, at heart, he is a Gen Xer. Yeah. He's a boomer. He's, he's right born the, the year my mother was. He's right on the cusp. He's you 56. Know? 1956. Yeah. And I feel like he has so many Gen X qualities. Agreed. It's weird. Yeah. 
So the book comes out and it really tells the truth about the restaurant industry. And I wrote, don't eat this before reading or don't eat before reading. This comes out a year before in the New Yorker. He's the executive chef at Leal and he was a heroin addict until 1988. Yeah. Yeah. And then we have some footage of him in the kitchen. Karen tells us he was handsome and he was tall, but he was very nerdy. <laughs> yeah, I think that's what is, I love about him. Which is, to me, the um, sexiest thing you can come up with. Yeah. Nerd, tall, yep, little rugged looking. Mm -hmm. I can completely see why Timmy would remind someone of Anthony Bourdain. One of our favorite episodes is when he goes to Nashville. And he's actually with that Allison Moorhart. Yeah. And they go to Nashville. I don't know if you've seen this episode. And they're just at this big house party. <laughs> and it's like a punk band. And Timmy is in his glory. He's like, I want to be there. I heard <laughs> I at that party. Timmy is very into punk. I'm okay. not at all. Okay. Um, it, it's a divide between us. But Anthony Bourdain was big into punk. And mm -hmm. I think that Timmy loves that side of him. That little bit of, yeah. Anthony Bourdain would fit in perfectly at a Henry Rollins show. He'd slide right on in there. 100%. 100%. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So now we have an interview with the owner, Philippe, who says, I didn't fire him, but I had no idea it was being written. <laughs> and then we see Anthony Bourdain get a call that he has a bestseller on the New York Times list. God. Yeah. What a dream. I, I will never get that call, but I can only imagine what that call is like. <laughs> yeah. You might get that call. You never know, girl. It could happen. So we learned that he was living paycheck to paycheck. So when the opportunity came to make some money, he was ready. And this reminds me of, um, did you ever read Stephen King's memoir? No. It's called On Writing. So it's half craft book and half okay. memoir. Okay. And he talks about, like, he was so dirt poor. He was an English teacher in the Midwest, I think. Or no, were they in Maine at the time? They might have been in Maine at the time. I feel like he was in the Midwest. I don't know why. Anyway, it doesn't matter. He was making like thirteen, fourteen thousand dollars a year. It was in the seventies, yeah. and his wife was working the donut counter overnight at the Man. local donut shop. He gets a call that he has sold. I think it was Carrie. Oh, no, okay, was, wow. Yeah, it was Carrie for like two hundred fifty thousand dollars. Oh my god! And when I read that, it like sends chills down my body what a because life like just experience. what a life changing thing. And Stephen King is very similar to Anthony Bourdain in that he was he had a brother and they were obsessed with comics. Mm. And adventure stories and writing. And it, it's so interesting how that kind of boredom in childhood breeds that creativity. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. All right. So where are we, girl? Oh, I have just a little note about his childhood. So he has a brother named Chris. Mm -hmm. Did you ever see the New Jersey episode where him and his brother go back to the Jersey Shore where they used to spend time as kids? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I um I always show that to my students hmm. in my creative or in my regular class, um, my freshmen, because one of our two of our main feeder schools are in Jersey. So all of them are from Jersey, basically. Oh, got it. OK. And I show them that and then I have them write essays about their hometowns. And it's oh, really cool. Yeah, yeah. 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 So anyway, Chris says they loved Tintin books. Are you familiar with this? I remember Tintin. I don't remember. Is that like Rin Tintin? God, what was it? Hold on. I, I will Google. Tintin books. I, I like vaguely remember this. Tintin. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, this is exactly what I think it is. It's The Adventures of Tintin is a series, 24 
um, albums created by a Belgian cartoonist. Okay. Yeah, I remember that. So his parents were pretty normal and they loved him and he rebelled against that. Of course he did. It's so interesting. Like you look at people and you, you would look at someone like him that he, you know, he did drugs and he was this badass and he always had like an angry edge to him and all yeah. that. You'd think like, yeah. wow, his childhood must have been hard. No, his childhood was totally normal. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, and his soul was to rebel against that normality. Yes. Yeah. I mean, somebody says later, and I think they have it correct. I think it's Chris, his um, editor or his sound or production partner. He says, if there was an idea, Anthony railed against it. Mm-hmm. Just, just because it was an idea. Just because he could. And he thought he should. Okay. So he was born in Manhattan. I have that his dad, Pierre, was a salesman at a New York City camera store. And he later became an executive for Columbia Records. And Gladys, his mother, was a staff editor at the New York Times. I love the name Gladys. And do you know she named Gladys anymore? No, you don't. It's a great name. Do you know she outlived him, which is really sad. She just died in 2020. A parent losing a child. It's just. I don't know how people survive. Losing a child in that way. Yeah. God. Yeah. I don't know how you survive it. He says by 43, he thought he had had all of his grand adventures. And we see him on his book tour, like mm-hmm. not not chef's tour, cook's tour, but his book tour, which looks sad and pathetic like most book tours. <laughs> and we see him, then we see him doing all the talk shows. Letterman, the Today Show, we see him on Oprah. Yeah. We see Bradley Cooper playing him in a movie. And he's like, I hate this. Bradley I hate Cooper. this. I hate Bradley Cooper is a national treasure. Can we oh, talk about it? We can absolutely talk about the fact that I should have gone to high school with him and married him. A hundred percent. I was this close to going to high school with him. You dropped the ball. What are you doing? Oh, no, no. Mother Amanda and father Amanda dropped the ball. I didn't have the choice. Like Jake and Matt always say, we could have been recording this from like a studio Malibu. What we happened? absolutely could have. We could have. I'm sorry. Blame my parents. It's their fault. So he tells the camera, when my 15 minutes of fame is up, I'll be relieved. So we see this nugget of him starting to not be thrilled about his fame. Yeah. Yeah. It, 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 I don't know. I think about fame a lot. Yeah. How I really wouldn't want to be famous. Um, it's weird because I don't want to be famous, Mm -hmm. but I do enjoy interacting with tons of people like i, I love too. interacting with people i do too but i, love, I also that's what wanna... I love about our little podcast group i love exactly people. but i also I like want to remain anonymous in a weird way <laughs> yeah i don't want to go to the grocery store and worry about the fact that i'm in yoga pants and haven't showered today i don't either and i don't think i'll ever have to worry about that i don't think but... so either <laughs> <laughs> but he just railed against it he did not want this mm-hmm So we see that he's been, you know, this book is doing well. And this woman named Lydia calls him up and she's like, let's make this book a show. Mm -hmm. So we're going to do Cook's Tour and you're going to travel the world and you're going to talk about blah, blah, blah. So um, she, Chris and Lydia go up to Layal, 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 and they shoot a demo. And they quickly realize he has never traveled anywhere. This is me. I am him. And this it's is so sort of why I love him. About. It's mm-hmm. so nuts to think about mm-hmm. that he had never been anywhere. Part of why I love him so much is 
the success that he had came in later life. However, I will, I don't want to, you know, he had great success as a chef. I don't want to downplay that. Yeah, you don't get to be executive chef of Leal. Right. Randos don't get that job. (laughs) But the success that he had as a writer came later. Yes. And I like that. Okay. So they they realize he's never traveled, that his travels were all in his head, Lydia says. Mm. And his view of the world, she says, emanate from books and film. And this is where we get a little bit of he's obsessed with the heart of darkness by Joseph Conrad. Right. Which, like, wow. really obsessed with. Also, very similar to Amy Archer, very obsessed with Vietnam. Yeah. Very obsessed with it. <laughs> I'm totally obsessed with Vietnam. <laughs> is that your Roman Empire? I think it is. I think about it a lot. I really do. So, um, and and we'll get to why when we get to um, the depression suicide area later. Okay. Yeah. So Chris says, our first leg of this was six weeks and we didn't know each other. And Tony was very unsure of what was going to happen. And he and Lydia had just gotten married and they were taking Tony along for the ride. Mm Mm-hmm. And they just didn't know what they were doing. And he's like, Tony's awkward. He's very shy. He's introverted. Like, not many people know that about him. And Lydia says, he can be a huge pain in the ass sometimes. Well, I'm sure he was a huge pain in the ass a lot of times. Many times. It's so strange to think, though, that he was introverted and shy. I know. That's not what he, that's not what he portrays on, on his shows at all. He portrays a very deep comfort in all sorts of situations with all sorts of people and his ability to connect with people. Yeah. But I mean, I'm an introvert as well. Like I'm what I call a social introvert. I don't, I think there's always this assumption that if you're more introverted, you don't like people, you don't want to socialize. It's like, no, I want to, but then I also need that time to come back and recharge. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I go back and forth on me because for many years I thought I was an extrovert for many, Mm -hmm. many years. But that is changing as I'm getting older. Like I'm wanting to spend more and more time in my house. Mm-hmm. Just by I've myself. taken I've taken the Myers Briggs twice, like the official version versus some like BuzzFeed quiz. Yeah, yeah. And one time I was like right on the edge of the introvert, and one time I was right on the edge of the extrovert. So I do think I'm really a true ambivert. I think it really depends on my mood of answering the questions that day. Yeah, which side is going to come out? Like I think if if I'm peopled out i probably show up more introverted yeah 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 so but i do get peopled out there is nothing more that i love than hearing somebody's story yeah you know and if i'm in a a restaurant situation or a bar situation i'm talking to somebody and we're talking about a story i'm in Mm -hmm. all in um so i guess i'm as I get older, I'm preferring more one-on-one contact. Like, that's what I love about this podcast is us just talking. Yep. I'm exactly. getting to know you. You're getting to know me. We're talking about something else. You know what I mean? Like, it's, I Absolutely. love it. I, I love, love it. sharing our stories. Mm-hmm. Me too. And that's one of the reasons I love listening to podcasts. Because I love listening to other people's stories. Yes. Same, you know, same. When mm-hmm. Matt and Jake are talking about 90 Day Fiance, yes, I'm interested to in what they say about that. But I'm just as much interested in the Oklahoma stories and Mother Poodle and all of that. Yes. That agreed. is just, if not more entertaining to me. <laughs> agreed. So. so Tony is all closed up and being a pain in the ass, but then they go to Vietnam and that's when things start getting a little better. Um, the owner of Lehal, Philippe, joins mm-hmm. them and that helped. And Philippe says, Tony loved Apocalypse Now. Never saw it. I never saw it either. Okay. I thought you were going to come for me. Never no. saw it. 
I never saw it either. Because I mean, I've seen scenes from it, but I've never seen the whole thing. And all I know is it has my beloved Martin Sheen in it. I don't watch war movies. More on that to come later. Okay. Okay. So um, he loved Apocalypse Now and he loved Vietnam. And Philippe says, I did too. You know, we were both like really into Vietnam. I don't know what's going on here. I would love to go to Vietnam. Me too. It's high on my list. And he says, you know... We see Tony starting to take a little bit of creative liberty and he's starting to love it. And we see footage of him like kind of directing now. Mm-hmm. And Chris says, this is the story, Tony. It's not you being a travel guide. It's you being open to things and being the audience and walking through and experiencing things. Absolutely. That's and what I love it. about it. Yeah. That's what I loved about watching him is he would just show up and these things would happen And yes, he was the star of the show, but he never made himself the center of the story. No, no, never. Mm -mm. Yeah. Um, I was thinking about him. Did you watch the latest 90 Day the other way? Yes. I was thinking about him when Brandan takes his mother to try street food because Tony always was a big street food person. Always a street food. Yes, absolutely. And his mother, I mean. She did well. She she did really well. She, yeah, I'm I'm really team mother brandan me too so chris uh no i have that right oh we get this interview of tony saying my rent is paid that they're like what are you gonna buy with all this money he's like my rent is paid that's all i need mm-hmm. i don't need anything spectacular and he never did live high off the no, no. now we meet eric and i don't know how to say his last name is it repair yeah repair. It's french right yeah so eric repair so a famous chef um in manhattan he invites tony to come to his restaurant they to, he tony is gobsmacked his gob is smacked his gob has been smacked he loved eric it was one of his idols yeah so they go there and eric says i was stunned by him he was articulate well-mannered and you know we met again and Eric said, we kept meeting and we became good friends. And Tony really struggled with staying real and being the host of a TV show. Mm. Yeah. Hmm. I think I think he struggled with staying real in himself. The thing that always perplexed me about him, and Timmy and I talked about this a lot as we were watching it. For an addict, he really drank a lot. And that was worrisome to me. I was like, mm-hmm. like, I could see that his addiction was in other things. Obviously, oh. we couldn't see behind the scenes. I didn't know what was happening there. Sure. No, he lives an addict's life. He's he's addicted to travel. He's addicted to adventure. He's addicted to booze. He's addicted to drama. I, he was always finding his addiction. And, and I think it gets talked about later in it with... um. His friend that the artist was Josh. Oh, Josh. David Cho. David Cho. That he was, and David Cho's like, I'm an addict too. It's not drugs. I'm addicted to everything else on the planet. Yeah. And I think, I think Tony was too. And I think he was, I think what he was is really addicted to trying to figure out how to feel better. Yeah. Because when you think about somebody who had a pretty quote unquote normal upbringing. Okay. Mm -hmm. And again, we don't know what goes on behind closed doors, but according to Tony, yeah, it was safe and healthy and fine. His parents loved him. Mm -hmm. He had a decent relationship with his brother, like just normal. I wonder if there was a sense of, I want more 
I want more than this and feeling yeah. guilty for that and mistaking okay. that for being broken. Like, why am I not content with this? I must be broken. Why is it? Why is all of this not enough? Right. Yeah. Okay. All right. So we have the friendship with, okay. So Chris tells us at this time, when I, his brother's also named Chris. When I say his brother, I say brother Chris. Okay. okay. Other Chris is TV Chris. TV Chris. Who I love. I think I love him, him and Lydia are great. Yeah. Chris says part of Tony's shtick at this point was that he would also, like part of the pitch to the network was that he would also eat bizarre things. Right. I remember that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And he he's said, willing to put anything in his mouth. Oh, yeah. He ate a beating cobra heart. <laughs> I know. The man had no fear. That's the part of him I, am, I do not identify with. I have fear. Me too. But food. remember that he always said that you never, and, uh, who was on 90 Day who went down and freaked out because they did a pig? Uh, that would be Larry. Larry. No. Larry. Oh, not dead. Thought, no, okay. Jason's dead. Jason's dead. Jason, Larry. Jason Cassia. Larry and Jenny. Yeah. When he had to eat the pig. You don't insult somebody's culture. If they yep. give you a live beating cobra heart, you eat it. <laughs> That's what Tony Bourdain believed. Uh, Whether or not Amy Archer could do that, I don't know. I'm going to then continue to put my... To not put myself in positions where someone's going to offer me a live cobra heart. Just, I think I don't think I could do that. I have eaten things like chicken livers, chicken, you know, like yeah. lame stuff like that. I could not eat something that was beating. No. And then he goes, oh, it was pulsating down my gullet. Oh, God. Oh, no. <laughs> dude. God. Was, I'm not going to lie. It was kind of badass. It was kind of badass. It's kind of sexy. And also, I kind of want to throw up. Yes. Both of these things are existing in the same space. Throughout this entire movie, I was like, he's kind of hot. This is hot. That's hot. Oh. This is hot. <laughs> I texted you. God, he is so sexy. Everything about him was sexy. I know. I know. So he says that um, Lydia and Chris wrote the voiceover at first. Mm -hmm. And Tony would come in and be like, what is this shit? <laughs> and he would this be rewriting it. And pretty soon he'd be writing the voiceover that we all know and love so much. And he says he saw it as an extension of himself and it had to be his voice. Yeah. So he's on the road for two years. He stopped working as a chef. His marriage fell apart. They were together for almost 30 years. That's nuts. Somebody says, I don't have who said it. Maybe Chris, maybe Eric. I'm not sure. Tony was a traditional romantic. He honestly believed that you could marry somebody from high school and stay together. The entire time. Which is lovely. It is. It really is. So Lydia says, um, Tony and Nancy were like Sid and Nancy. It was like a love born out of rebellion. Mm. And brother Chris says, Nancy had no interest in fame. And this was Tony's life now. She probably was happy for that in the divorce settlement. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to guess, given how they started out as young, you know, whippersnappers taken on the world, the divorce probably worked out well for her. Yeah. Financially. Maybe not emotionally, but financially. His voiceover says, I cruelly burned down my previous life in its totality. All right. So now we go to the era is 2005-2012. No reservations. Yeah. So, and that was on the Travel Channel, if you remember. Um, favorite not no reservations episode is when they are in, I want to say Colombia. It is Colombia. And... Colombia and a bunch of people, the police, whatever, take him to this field where they destroy cocaine. 
So they're like, you know, just there's tons of cocaine all over this field. And it's all exactly where Tony Bourdain should be. It's all on these big like blankets and stuff. And he goes, This looks like my bedspread in the 70s. (laughs) (laughs) Thought that was pretty good. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I love him. All right. Oh, God. So, 2006, they're in Beirut and war breaks out. Tony is super frustrated because they're sitting around a pool getting tan, he says, and we're watching a war. Yeah. And he's not happy. He's very upset right now. He He did not want the episode to air. He said he didn't want to exploit the situation that was happening. And the Travel Channel disagreed. And they did it, yeah. So Tony wrote a pretty dark ending, and it, I, I wrote down what he said. Um, the dinner table is – I used to believe the dinner table was the great leveler. Now I'm not so sure. Maybe everybody, the good and the bad, are all together and all crushed under the same terrible wheel. Mm. Yikes. And this was a turning point for him. And this is something that I kind of want to talk about. Like, I feel – That this is what happened to me when I was doing all that work on the gun book. Okay. Like you just get to this point where you're like, so I was, you know, every day talking to school parents who lost kids in school shootings. I mean, Sandy Hook parents, Mm -hmm. Columbine people. I mean, you know, uh, Parkland. And it just gets to be so much and you don't realize the effects it's taking on your health, on your marriage, on your home life. You know what I mean? And eventually, like, I just had to completely shut myself out of it. Like, I stopped doing all my advocacy work. I stopped watching the news. I stopped listening. Like, I just had to get into this protective bubble Mm -hmm. where I just had to breathe a little bit. And I feel like... I feel like I I get where he's coming from. He's starting to see that there's these problems in the world. And I yeah. feel the same way. Like, I always tell my therapist, I am walking around with devastating information inside of me. I know things about these kids and these parents and these shootings mm-hmm. that I've never told anyone. Because it's yeah. like handing someone a bomb. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And so, like, I have all of this in me. And it just changes how I see the world now. Like I just see the world differently. Of course. And I see it as. Right. I see it as like I'm more jaded than I ever was. Sure. I see it as terrible a lot of times. And it's sad because I never used to be like that. And when they talked about this turning point for him, I was like, I can relate to that. Yeah. You immerse yourself in evil or. Something that's very emotionally taxing and you can't not be changed. I mean, this is not, this is not even the same level of what you're talking about with the gun violence interviews and research and work that you've done. But uh, in 2020, I, I used to be a constant news watcher. I had MSNBC on 24-7, 365. If it wasn't that, I was watching the West Wing. This is what I did every day. Mm -hmm. I loved politics and I loved Yes. The news. Yes. And it hit a point probably in like April of 2020 between the state of U.S. politics, between COVID, between the U.S. response to COVID, between the worldwide response, between being unemployed and isolated. I realized one day I had to turn this off mm-hmm. because every moment of my 
psyche was being taken up by how awful everything is. Yes. And it, it you can't live in that. And then what you become, what I've become is a magnet for gun violence stories. So like a shooting breaks out and my phone is blowing up. Everybody's uh, sending it to me. I bet. Everybody and and I don't want to say like I feel there's immense privilege, right, in being mm-hmm. able to shut it off. Yeah. Because there's communities who live in fear of gun violence every day. Absolutely. Um, but I mean, I have kids to raise too, and I just had to reach a point where I was like, I can't live like this anymore. And the news no. was a big part of it. Yeah, and you can't live like that anymore because then at some point you can't let your daughters leave the house because you can't right. because you're terrified at every moment. And no one can live that way. And Tony Bourdain was someone who walked into a lot of treacherous and scary situations. And devastating poverty devastating and inequality poverty. and Yeah. Yeah. And I think he I think the rebelli- the rebellious man in him was radically equal equalitarian egalitarian equalitarian yes that's what i was gonna say like he had an enormous moral compass mm-hmm. similar to nat in yellow jackets like how we talk about yes. her yeah i know it's weird but like sometimes these people who seem like the biggest rebels are really you know really dedicated to social justice Yes. And to to equal to equality for for everybody, you know, and mm-hmm. really guided by an intense set of morals of and right principles. And, yes. and, it, and it may not be the same one that you and I operate by. Sure. It doesn't have to be, but for him, just like for Natalie on Yellow Jackets, <laughs> in his brain, in her brain, it's very clear what's right and wrong. Yeah. And we operate from that position all of the time. Yeah, and I think that him coming into these communities with the television crew and production felt icky to him. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. These people haven't or don't have clean water and don't, mm-hmm. you know, all of these things. And he's like, look at me, the rich American dude with my big TV mm-hmm. crew here. So even if this is a dangerous place, I'm pretty much guaranteed to be, guaranteed to be okay because I got me a film crew with me. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's yep. so interesting. So, so interesting. We we see now that in 2007, he meets Octavia, his second wife. She worked for Eric. Tony became smitten with her. She's a strong Italian woman. Yeah, I love her. I love her too. And, you know, she gets pregnant. And Tony voiceover says, for most of my life, I would not have been a good father. But, you know, I'm at a place where I can do it now. Yeah. And Octavia. Uh, Octavia, I always write Octavia. Octavia says any fear she had dissipated when he was so excited to be a father to Ariane, I think is their Mm -hmm. daughter's name. And we have some great great home videos. We see Anthony playing a character on Yo Gabba Gabba. So super cute. He's on The Simpsons. We see him doing tours. And this is the time when he was on that cooking reality show to me. I was like, what is happening? (laughs) He's trying to settle down and be able to be home every night. And I think he's trying to make some steady income, you know, yeah. and, and be, yeah. So uh, now we have David Cho and he's, David Cho, there's a little problem with him. Okay. I don't know much about him. He He's a wildly talented artist. We see okay. that painting he does yes. instead of Anthony Bourdain. I want it. How do I get that? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Um, he made a joke about rape Ooh. and then like tried to back pedal a bunch of times. So like. I don't know how I feel about him. Okay. You know what I mean? But 
in in terms of him talking about this, that's fine. I feel like he really wanted to center himself in Tony's life as more important than he might have been. I think so, too. <laughs> but, you know, who am I to say? But, I mean, I also think they really understood each other in sure. a tortured artist way. Yeah. Yeah. So he tells us that Tony was beginning to settle into being famous. We see them talking on an episode of No Reservations. We see a montage of of Tony traveling. Now we meet Tom Vitale, the director. He's telling us that Tony was a control freak. You could not win an argument. If an idea existed, he challenged it just because he could. Yeah. And he I, says, Tony. I, I wouldn't want to live with that, but I love it. I love it too. I would not yeah. want to live with it. Yeah. Tony's bullshit detector was intense. Oh, I'm sure. And when he wanted to leave, he wanted to leave. And then we get the best footage of the entire thing, which is the mime. Remember yes. the mime? Yes. <laughs> so Tony's like, that mime better not fucking come over here. Get the fuck away from me. And the mime's coming over. He's just like freaking out. Oh, mimes, then, mimes freak me out. He gets up and he's like, this is too fucked up. I'm out of here. This is too fucked up. <laughs> the mime. This man's done mm -hmm. heroin, but the mime, that's mm -hmm. too fucked up. <laughs> hey everyone, stay tuned. Little Miss Recap will be right back after these words. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. So we we see his crew comes in. He's very, his crew is very dedicated to him. He mm -hmm. had the same people around him for many, many years. Um, Tony, or Tom says Tony was a, countercultural voice every country we went to was still dealing with the fallout of something america had done mm -hmm. and we see him in laos and he's talking with people who've been bombed and he tells them this is the least i could do so, so one guy that he's talking to is like kind of crying yeah. and he says this is the least i could do every american should see the results of our war so he says to him and we see yeah. him getting more political and more and, and this is what i'm talking about he's getting more and more worked yeah. up over shit I had never thought about the fact that he deliberately went to places that the U.S. screwed up. I don't think there's many places you can go that no. they haven't. I haven't. Yeah, yeah. no, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Especially like he loved Southeast Asia. Mm -hmm. You know what and I mean? And those are some so, of my favorite episodes of yes. his. Yep. That in the Middle East. Like the yeah. episode that he did in Palestine. I don't remember that one. Israel and Palestine was amazing. Okay. Yeah. I remember when he was in Vietnam and Obama came to see him. Oh, I know. In Hanoi, and they, and they shared a mm -hmm. hot dog and mm -hmm. a beer. And yep. So two at a table. Oh, if I saw the two of them at a table. Oh my god, I would die. Up. I would die. Yeah. I would die. Just kill me right there. I've yeah. lived out my dream. I've lived. It's all good. So we see him trying to give a village some leftover food that they had, and it gets really ugly because mm -hmm. these people are living in desperate poverty and 
you know, they're pushing each other out of the way. And, and David Cho says, Tony began to see suffering in this world and it really changed how he saw things. He was traveling 250 days a year at this point. And the time he did spend with Ariane, he was very, very attentive. Lydia said, um, fatherhood changed him. He never experienced a love like that. Um, Now we see Josh. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, we do see an interview with Tony where he's saying he's the happiest standing in the backyard being a dad. I love that. And um, Tom says, as much as Tony loved being home, he loved leaving. Yeah. So Josh, now we see Josh home. He is a friend and a musician and they really bonded because Josh had a young daughter as well. Mm-hmm. And he was on the road a lot too. And I think he was in the Nashville episode I think with so Alison Morehart. Yeah. So they both traveled and they talk and Tony says, you know, I love being home, but within a week, I feel like I'm going stir crazy. Josh says Tony was the great American storyteller and it was amazing to watch him pick up influence everywhere he went. Now we see him in the Congo and we see them taking a real sketchy flight in the Congo. And Tom Vitale says it was probably the most dangerous place they had ever filmed. And Tony was really into Heart of Darkness, like really into that novel. It's an and interesting one. It says a lot really about him that that's the, one yes. he, that the novel he's into. And Chris says Tony was pushing himself towards an understanding of apocalypse. Now this gets a little weird. Yeah. And we see yeah. the episode, like Tony's kind of acting it out and talking about it. And um, you know, we see him like kind of killing things in the condo Congo, like um animals, you know, like hunting. And it's just it's it's kind of meant for us to see this is a new turn version that he's yeah. taking. So now we're at Parts Unknown, 2013 to 2018. We see press for the new show on CNN, including Anderson Cooper, fawning over him. Love Anderson Cooper. Okay, that's another two men. Put those two men together, and I'm dying a happy person. And then um, Anthony Bourdain had won a Peabody. He won several Emmys. I didn't realize he won a Peabody. That's huge. Yeah. Eric says he was a journalist and he was political, but he was a storyteller, and he didn't realize how political he was. And uh, Tony voiceover says, we only see Africa and countries like it when bad things happen. So true. And David Cho says, it was never about food. It was about Tony searching to become a better person. And David says, Tony was really fucking dark, man. Really dark. Like, I don't think people knew how dark he was. No, we knew. No, we knew. That was part of the charm. Yeah. but But I don't think we really understood just how dark his own personal darkness was um i think i think it's i think for a lot of people like him particularly people who wind up taking their own lives in that way they're constantly feeling like they need to figure out how to be a better person yeah and he was an extraordinary person yeah and he didn't know it now i'm not sure i'd want to be married to him i don't think he'd probably be an easy person to be married to silence over here yeah Yeah. (laughs) um i gotta really think about that because i think that i don't know like he just loved so intensely i feel like you would definitely feel loved by him but you're right i think that that you you would be something like whoever he was married to would be something he would lose interest in as we see Mm -hmm. yeah 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 um, and he was probably extremely difficult. You're right. Yeah. yeah I think living mm-hmm. with him would have been mm-hmm. extremely difficult because I think he's very particular and peculiar. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So now we see him in Provincetown. Did you ever see that episode where he does Cape Cod in Provincetown? No, I'll have to watch it. Um, Timmy and I, everywhere we go, we watch the episode he does there. Yeah, so we, we try see. to do that too. Yeah, so when we were going to Cape Cod, we watched it. So it was pretty recently. And uh, he talks about his heroin use there. Yeah. It was when it was really bad. David Cho says he never dealt with the issues that put him down the dark road as a junkie. And Tony voiceover says... Something was missing in me, and part of me wanted to be a dope fiend. I thought about it as being an artist. Yeah, and I, I <laughs> thought it was really interesting. He's like, yeah, the first time I shot up heroin, I looked at myself, and I was like, yes, this is what I'm supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's, like he, it's almost like he thought he had to take on, take on the framework of tortured artist. Yeah. Or he wasn't a torture, or he wasn't yeah. a true artist. Yeah. And the question becomes, was he truly that tortured mm-hmm. or did he, ha- did he feel like you had to put it on in order to do good work? Yeah. I don't I know. Mean, yeah. I mean, I, I would, I believe a lot of his idols were tortured artists. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. We see him with I, Iggy Pop at some point, by the way. I, did you see that? I, I love that with Iggy Pop. I, I just found it interesting that David chose like, you're the only person I know who quit heroin cold turkey. Yep. Yeah. And he says, Tony says, I saw myself as somebody worth saving. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, God. Yes, you are. Do you, you think were. Do you think it was something like, I'm going to quit heroin cold turkey because I can. Like, do you think it was, he had, not, not the arrogance or the hubris, but do you think he knew he had control over his drug habit? Like, who has control over their drug habit? Nobody. Right. No. But like, no, he kind of did. Kind of did, or he, he chose or to he, start it, and he chose to end it. Yeah, it's it's interesting because you know you hear we we laugh and joke a lot about love after lockup, but truly it's a story of the the drug epidemic it's, in this country. According to what's his name, Brittany and Marcelino. Marcelino. Marcelino said it was a documentary about recidivism, and he's not and wrong. It is. It, it is absolutely is a documentary yes. about recidivism. And the impact of addiction. Yes. And yeah, it's, oh gosh. Mm -hmm. So uh, David says Tony's addiction jumped from thing to thing. Mm -hmm. He he threw himself into things completely. I have a little bit of this in me. Like if I I like something, I just go balls to the wall. Same. And it could be something as like food. I'm going to eat this thing for the next seven weeks Mm -hmm. until I can't Mm -hmm. stand it anymore. Yep. So we see him getting into jujitsu, and mm. um, Octavia was a jujitsu fighter, and she got Tony into it. He quit smoking. He got healthy. I remember he looked, that period. I did he too. Great. He looked he looked fantastic. Mm-hmm. I mean, he still looked chiseled and rugged, but he looked clean, clear eyed, clear face. I love chiseled and rugged. I do too. <laughs> uh, and I thought it was interesting that that the reason Octavia did it, she's like, I want to be able to kill anybody who gets near my daughter. I love her. I love her too. Yeah. So everyone in his life says he became insufferably obsessed with jujitsu. <laughs> <laughs> and Tony says um, he always had a timeline. Oh, Tom says he, t- Tony always had a timeline. I don't think there was anything that would have lasted forever in his life. Yeah. So now Octavia says, you know, we lived like strangers and he wanted 
in ordinary life, but after a while, he didn't want that anymore. And she said they were living separately for quite some time. Their romantic love had dissipated, but they were good friends and their focus was their daughter. Kim, his agent, says the loss of that love left him incredibly vulnerable. So they split up in 2016. David Cho has an email that Tony sent him that is haunting. He says, yeah. my life is sort of shit now. I'm successful. You're successful. But are you happy? That's heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. And just the, the imagery that they used as they did that voiceover of him mm -hmm. sitting on this gorgeous wall somewhere in Italy with a glass yeah. of wine and just... I, I think that was I think that was a huge part of it for him. He was sitting in all of these amazing places, living this amazing life, and he's like, it's not enough. I'm why aren't I happy? Well, and he he doesn't have anyone to share it with. Right. Yeah. So we see him doing therapy in one episode, and he's telling the therapist that he has a manic personality. He said, One day I'm fine, and one little thing sets me off. I have fantasies of hurting other people or myself. I'd like to be able to be calmer and to relax. So we see that. And we, in the opening scene, we see him talking about suicide with Eric. Mm -hmm. yeah. Like he's, he's talked about it. It's always been a part of him. Mm -hmm. I wonder from this just little snippet, and I don't want to diagnose people at all. I wonder if he, if he had bipolar disorder. Maybe. I don't know enough about it, but maybe. I mean, just the fact that he described himself as manic and the swings and mm -hmm. his hyper focus on things and his yeah. deep depression. I don't know. It would it would explain a lot about him. I, I think too, like this is that were true. But I don't is, want to diagnose anybody. I don't know. This is part of the reason I was always very like I tr I act like he was my brother. I was very right. concerned about his drinking. Yeah. Because it's such a depressant. Yeah, absolutely. And it's not good for somebody who's prone to depression. Correct. He's already depressed yeah. and he's yep. doing all that. So um, now Allison Mossart comes in and she's the friend from the Nashville episode. And she said they became pen pals for years. And she said she he was searching for something clearly and it tortured him. And we see him with Iggy Pop and he asks Iggy, what thrills you? And Iggy says being loved. Oh, Leo. Leo. Leo also is thrilled by being loved. So now we're in Rome and he meets Asia. Uh -huh. And he's taken with her immediately. Which and Octavius, I know, Octavia Gosh. says, I was happy for him. And he had told Octavia that Asia was very insecure of their relationship. So please stop posting pics of you and I on social media. How dare you? How dare you? Yeah. Asia, first of all, the age difference is quite, quite pronounced, right? Quite pronounced. And I, I mean, if, if Todd's ex-wife were posting photos, I, I mean, she reposts stuff of their child, of their child's adventures. Like when memories come up, yeah. she reposts all that stuff. She's not posting new stuff because there just isn't any new stuff. Right. But like, I wouldn't be, I'm never bothered by that. No, no. That was their life. Especially. They had if, a history. Especially if he's famous. Right. Exactly. You know what I mean? And she, no, I wouldn't care. Yeah. So. Allison Mosshart says he referred to Ozzy as the crazy Italian actress in emails, and he predicted that it was going to end very, very badly between them. Yeah. Lydia says his last relationship had extremes at its center, and it was inevitable that it would end. And Josh, his, his musician friend, says he was looking for something feral and wild. Now we see by all accounts that he was starting to become agoraphobic. 
Mm-hmm. And it seemed like he was about to go on to something else, but I don't know. I don't know who said that and why I wrote it in there, but whatever. <laughs> um, they started doing more isolated shows because he really couldn't go anywhere without being recognized. So they started going to these like very small villages and stuff and more off the grid stuff. Tony said that. Um, Imagine being agoraphobic and everywhere you go, someone's recognizing no. you. No. No. Oh, God. That would just be off. No wonder he didn't want to leave his house. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't want to leave my house either. Tom says, in an ideal world, Tony always said he wouldn't be in the show. Mm -hmm. It would just be his voice, his guiding, but he would not be a character in the show. Lydia says, a few years back, Tony asked to see Chris and Lydia at a bar, and he broke up with them. He essentially said, I can't do this anymore. I'm not doing it anymore. And Lydia says, I was super supportive. And I was like, that's fine, dude. Do what you have to do for you. Move to Italy. Go be with Asia because that's what he wanted. And he froze and couldn't do it. So sad. Then we, then we see this Hong Kong nightmare. Jesus. They're in Hong Kong. And Michael gets sick, the director. Tony, Tony thinks Asia should direct this episode. The crew's like, uh, okay. okay. <laughs> but it wasn't it wasn't good. We see like Tony having a very intense conversation with this gentleman, and she's like breaking the the mm-hmm. the conversation to up the to like reset and- the scene and it's it's crazy. It ruins it. It ruins the whole thing. And both Chris and Lydia are like, Tony would have flipped the fuck out on us if we did that. Like mm-hmm. you don't do that. Mm-hmm. So it's a disaster. And Chris says, you know, we're just trying to help our friend out. And if that meant doing, and then he starts to cry and he can't continue the interview. Tony says it was the highlight of his creative career and he was happy. Okay. Now we have a downturn. The downturn is the last section here. Yeah. Zach was a cinematographer for 12 years. Tony loved him, but he butted heads with Ozzie. So Tony fired him. And Chris says the last year was manic. The highs were high. The lows were really, really ugly. Octavia says he was not the same person, but he started going to therapy and I thought I could stop worrying about him. And she starts to cry and says, I will always worry. I will always wonder if I should have kept more of an eye on him. That's very upsetting to me. That's incredibly upsetting. And the fact that she's like, after this, I'm never talking about this again. I can't. Yeah. I can't talk about this anymore. Yeah. Even though they divorced, she she so very clearly loved him and mm-hmm. cared deeply for him. Mm-hmm. And even if he, even if she didn't care for him, the father of her child. Yeah. And he loved his kid. Yeah. That was the thing that shocked me is when he did take his own life to be like, but you were so in love with your daughter. But you're not, you're just not thinking about that. Well, no, it's we can It's not talk a about logical that. decision. Yeah. Well, as, yeah. as someone who has tried to commit suicide, it is not a logical yeah, decision. It's not a logical decision. You're in such yeah. a dark place. I mean, it's, but I under, I, so how do I say this without giving too much information? Somebody I know in my life, mm-hmm. I was in this position where I was worried about them constantly. Mm-hmm. And I became so obsessed with that idea of what would it feel like if somebody did that and you felt blame? Yeah. That I wrote my whole second book about that. It's a fiction novel, but it's all about that. That's the book I'm working on. Got (laughs) it. And like, how do you come to terms with that? And how do you, like, at what point does our responsibility for another human being end? And Mm -hmm. what point does it begin? Do you know what I mean? 
Yeah, and we can't if someone wants if someone wants to take their own life, you can't stop them. I mean, mm-hmm. if they're bound and determined to do it, it is next to impossible to stop them. You can watch for signs, you can sure. try to get them help, but right. it's not your response like it's not yeah. your responsibility. If it's gonna happen, it's gonna happen. It's yeah. not, you know what I mean? Yeah, but it's so hard. I know. So um, we see footage of him and Asia and Kim, his agent, says his love for her was safe and pure and he needed that from her in return and he didn't get it. Now we see him on The Daily Show and he's talking about Asia and the Me Too movement. I remember this too. I do too. Asia had been one of the first victims of Harvey Weinstein who came out. Yes. And Tony really stood by her and she goes to the Cannes Film Festival and she's on stage and she's saying that Harvey Weinstein raped her in 1997 at a Cannes Film Festival and it is a breeding ground for predators and she just like takes them down. She gets up on the stage and she's like, I'm burning this all to the ground. Fuck all you people. Which I don't, I don't blame her. Now, here's the problem. Talk to me. Asia has had her own Me Too situation. Mm-hmm. where she was accused of having sex with someone who was underage and assaulting him, you know, mm-hmm. and um, she denied it. Tony paid him hush money, $400,000. And later video surfaced of her having sex with him. Like she claimed that she never, she right. never had sex with him, blah, blah, blah. But now she has pretty much had to say, okay, I did, but I didn't know he was underage or something like that. So right. she's it's a little good. problematic in her own way. Sure. Mm-hmm. Okay. I don't want to say Harvey Weinstein is not oh, no. a monster. He's a monster. Harvey Weinstein and, is And what happened to her horrible, was terrible. Horrible. We've said this a million times. Horrible things can happen to people and people can do horrible things. One does not mean the other isn't true. Thank you. Yes. It can both happen. It does all the time. Mm -hmm. So um, now Octavia says at first it was very noble of him to get wrapped up in this cause, but then he became obsessed with it and started cutting people out of his life and his addiction turned to Asia. And Lydia says, you don't want his legacy to be someone who succumbed to the darkness. He created something so important, and that is his legacy. And she breaks down sobbing. Um, So now we go to France, the final episode, the final. Yeah, the final time. Eric is interviewed and says he doesn't speak about it. He doesn't want to talk about it. I don't blame and him. by all accounts, the scenes between Tony and Eric are lighthearted and normal. Mm-hmm. And four days in, Tony gets there and he's angry and the scene gets dark and they start talking about death. Tabloid shit comes out about Asia and Hugo Clement, who I don't know this guy. Tony's on a balcony and he's smoking and Michael Steed, one of the directors, goes out to him and asks how he is. And Tony pauses and says, a little fucking discretion. I don't want to have to fucking deal with this. And he's talking about the tabloid story. Yeah. And his friends say... He's been talking a lot about ending his life. Helen Cho says, if you look at his last Instagram story, he played music from Violent City, a movie in the 70s about a couple in paparazzi photos, and it's a revenge film. A woman betrays him and he seeks his revenge. Michael Steed says, I'm very cautious about blaming someone else. Tony killed himself. He did mm-hmm. it. And Absolutely. I agree with that. I do too. Mm-hmm. I, 
I think his relationship with Asia didn't help him. Mm -hmm. But he wanted to die himself. It, 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 I don't blame. Yeah, it's so hard. So Chris, brother Chris says, my brother committed suicide. If someone else had been there in the room with him, it would have been murder. He was mm -hmm. just in a dark rage. And we learned that the toxic toxicology report is clean and mm -hmm. he was sober. And David Cho says he let me down and he starts to sob. And Allison Mossart says he wasn't cruel, but there was a cruelty to this. Yeah, it, so, there, is, there is. But I, again, I under... I understand it. I like I said. I I've I was suicidal in when I was twelve years old, mm -hmm. and I truly, honestly believed that taking my own life was the best thing for everybody. Yeah, I really believe that. I believe my parents would be happier. Like you get into that space, and when people get really angry at people who commit suicide or take their own life, and I'm not, we're not supposed to say commit suicide, right? Anymore. Die by suicide. Die by suicide. Um, they get angry at them, and I understand why they do. Because it feels yeah. selfish from the outside. Yeah. But what I always say to people is when you're in it, you feel like you're being as selfless as possible. Right. Because I, I understand that. I myself yeah. have dealt with this as a teenager. And mm -hmm. you feel like it is a selfless act. Mm -hmm. Because everybody around you is suffering because you're alive. Like that's because how you're you alive, feel. Because you're so terrible. And yes. you're so. Yes. You've made a mess of so many stuff. I mean. I don't know how to, I don't know how at 12 years old, I thought I'd messed up everyone's life to such a degree, but I did. But that is the teenage brain. That is the teenage brain you know, I, I riddled deal with, with depression. I deal with this with my girls all the time. I'm always telling them there's, and this is something my dad used to say to me when I was growing up that I really have grown to appreciate as I got older. Mm -hmm. He would all, always say to me, there is nothing we can't fix. There's yes. nothing we can't get out of. There's yep. nothing we can't fix. I say it to my girls all the time because- I remember being in a situation where I thought there's no way out of this. Yes. And it was so, so stupid. It was something so stupid. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? But to, yeah. to 13 and 14 year old Amy, like that was huge. It was everything. Yeah. I was, I was being bullied all day, every day. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, I must be this terrible person if people are this mean to me. Mm -hmm. And I'm in so much pain that the best thing I can do is just to end it. Yeah. And I didn't think there was any way to fix the bullying. Right. And it just, it felt hopeless. And I think that's a beautiful thing to tell, to tell everybody, particularly yeah. your kids. And I think it's a, I think it's a very loving parental thing to say to your kids of like, I got your back, whatever it is, yeah. we'll get you out of it. Yeah. My dad still says that to me. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's true. Like there's nothing, I can't imagine my kids doing anything that I could not help them out of. Sure. You know what I mean? I'm and that the would fixer. change how you feel about them, period. I'm the fixer. <laughs> yep. <laughs> okay, Shauna. But I just feel like, so um, full disclosure, so when I was growing up, my best friend's father was a Vietnam vet. Okay. And he had a lot of Agent Orange on him. He had a lot of trauma. And he had a lot of addiction problems. Mm -hmm. And I can remember being 14, 15. And this was my best friend at the time, not Stephanie, obviously. But I can remember being 14, 15 years old and I would be at her house all the time because her mm -hmm. parents let us do anything. So we'd sure. be there all the time, we all sneaking have those out into the woods like, drinking. Mm -hmm. Right. And he would be in his bar down in the basement of their house and he would have full metal jacket on wow. and it would be blasting. 
and he would be drunk as a skunk and he would be screaming at the television and he would be, you know, just really like having a trauma response. Sure. And I was like 14. And this was so traumatic to me to see an adult in this way. And then a lot of nights he would just pass out. We'd have to carry him up the stairs, put him on the Mm -hmm. couch. Like it was bad. And he eventually took his own life when I want to say I was maybe 25. And it it, it just, and it was something that just scarred me. And I learned so much from him. And in a weird way, like in moments of when he was sober, I learned so much from him about the Beatles. Like he was somebody Mm. who really like loved the Beatles and we bonded over that. But I also learned a lot about the Vietnam War from him. Like he talked incessantly. So like I learned a lot about it. And I think that's when I became kind of very obsessed with it. Did your father go to Vietnam? No. My dad, Vietnam story, I'll tell it very, very briefly. My dad's um, number came up. He was 18. And his number came up in the draft, the lottery. And it was like a Thursday. and Or maybe it was a Friday. I forget. And him and his friends all got had their lottery numbers called. So they decided that they were going to go down to the recruitment office and sign up. Because if you signed up for the military, you got to pick which branch you want to go in. And they want to go into the Navy. Okay. So they were going to go Friday and sign up. And my dad held back. And he was like, you know, I just want to talk to my dad first. Make sure I'm doing the right thing. Blah, blah, blah. So the friends went down, they signed up. I think it was that night, Nixon ends the draft. And so oh, my dad. Wow. So the friends went. <laughs> my oh, dad. Shit. Yikes. It was a it's an amazing story. My dad has a lot of stories like that where he like narrowly escapes terrible situations. But yeah, my dad got drafted, but I, I want to say he had like problems with his knees or something. Mm, I don't remember the whole thing. He was thing, 4F. He, he just didn't ha- he wound up not yeah. having to go. But his what my best friend growing up, her father is a Vietnam vet and he would never talk about it, but he had like all of these scars. I remember as a little kid looking at his back, yep. he had all these scars, he had all this shrapnel Yes, and asking my mom about it. And she would, you know, tell me in like four year old terms mm-hmm. what had happened, but. Well, and that's the thing. Like I have a vet that I bring into my classes to talk to my students mm-hmm. and he says 20 years went by and then we had our 20th reunion. That's the first time any of us ever spoke of our time in Vietnam. They never yeah. talked about it. No. It's crazy. They slunk back into this country. It's terrible. It's terrible. What we do to, what we do to veterans in this country I know. is abysmal. Like, they deserved a fucking hero's welcome, and they didn't they get sure it. Did. They had to sneak back in here under cover of darkness, which is crazy. And they deserved a shit ton of mental health support, yes. and they got nothing. Yes. Okay. So, now we see the end of the film. Kim says, it's been over two years. I still experience a range of emotions. She starts to sob. David Cho says, I haven't cut my hair since mm-hmm. he died. And then he gets his hair cut and defaces one of his murals. Yeah, because he said he's like, he would hate this. So <laughs> the best thing I could do is deface it, which I think is actually a beautiful tribute to him. Yes. Eric says, I miss a dear, dear friend. Philippe says, I was in Vietnam when I saw the news and I said, okay, I'm moving to Vietnam for good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, everyone is devastated. Lahal uh, becomes a shrine, but now it's closed. Leal is closed. closed Leal, I'm sorry. Yeah. And Octavia says, I have the best daughter and I will always be grateful that Tony gave her to me, but this is the last time I'll ever talk publicly about this because I don't want to remember him this way. Yeah. Brother Chris cries and says, I don't think he realized how much he meant to people. 
And they end with the Cape Cod episode where Tony says, I was an angry young man, but I forget what I was angry about. And then David chose defacing the mural. Yeah. So I, I wonder, like, I think, I think about like, how would he feel about the fact that two, some of us are 40, some of us are 50. <laughs> two middle-aged basic women. white women are talking about him. <laughs> We're talking about him and talking about how much we loved him and how much he meant to us. I wonder how he would feel about that. I, I think he would be profoundly uncomfortable. Oh, 100%. 100%. I, I think he would hate this. I he would he hate, hate everything this. about this. Um, yeah. But I feel like it's the best tribute to him is to talk about him and talk about the the way that he opened up the world to people. I Googled to see how many countries he traveled to. He traveled to 80 countries. Wow. Yeah. And he opened the world to people, but he was also, there was something about him because there's been a lot of chefs who've done stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Traveling chef shows are not anything new. His was so different. There's something about him that he was like the common man. It was like a victory for the little guy. You know what I mean? Like his ability to connect with people of all ages, races, socioeconomic class. He could just kind of walk into a situation and show up in it and meet mm-hmm. people where they were all and the he, time. He also like like you see his quotes are shared all the time on Instagram, mm-hmm. right? He's he also like he he was very elegant in the way he spoke, obviously, but he was also very like he he had a certain protocol that he expected people fall protocol. 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 Um like he was like treat your wait staff nice. Don't be a right. fucking asshole. Yeah, and don't like, treat people badly. That yes. was like a huge ethos for him. Don't yes. be shitty to yes. people. Yes. And we saw obvious. that. We saw yeah. that. Like he could have, he would treat a, a mother in Cambodia as as eloquently as and with as much reverence and importance as he would a member of the royal family in, in Britain. As, as he treated he Barack tr- Obama when they met. Yes. Yes. Exact same. Yes. One was no better than the other to him. Yes. They were just different with different experiences and different things to teach him. Yes. I think he, I think he saw everybody as an opportunity to learn more and not in a, not in a mean way, not in I'm, I'm taking mm-hmm. something from him, but it's just, you're going to, you're going to be who you are and your experience of yourself is going to show me more of the world and show me more of my own experience with myself. Yeah. And I am not a word art person, but the closest I've come is to framing a quote of his and I'm not sure like I keep going back on a number of them but it's yeah. it's about travel and it's about how travel changes you yeah and he always I said be a traveler that. not a tourist yes there's a difference yes. there's a big difference yeah. and unfortunately I've probably traveled a lot more than I've or been a tourist more than I've traveled mm-hmm. we all have sure. we all have yeah um but yeah he's he was just such a beautiful human being and the gift he was, that- but he was very. I say this about John Lennon a lot. He was mm-hmm. an asshole. Oh yeah, well, like, <laughs> like, I don't think I want to be married to him. If you deny that John Lennon was an asshole, you don't know him very well. Do you know right, what I exactly. mean? Like Tony Bourdain was an asshole. He was an I'm, asshole. I'm kind of proud of it, but there I'm was not kind of proud of it. He was proud of it, but he was a he was a principled, fair, decent, yeah. asshole. If that makes yeah. sense. <laughs> There's a base level kindness to him. Yes. Yeah. I, I love the the um distinction between being kind and being nice. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think he was nice. 
I think he was kind, though. I agree. I agree. He saw um, everybody's worth and value. Mm-hmm. And he, he was better he, than nobody in his mind. If anything, he, he was worse than everybody. It, it was kind of the opposite. I feel like if you had privilege in some way, he'd probably treat you a little less. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Like the easier your life is, mm-hmm. the more dubious he was of you. And, and that could be part of his, maybe he rebelled against his life because it was easy growing mm-hmm. up. You know, he had the quintessential boomer childhood. Yeah. And absolutely. was like, I can't have this. No. No. Anyway, R.I.P. R.I.P. This is a true R.I.P. I hope whatever, I hope wherever he is, in whatever form he takes, he's at peace. Yeah. And I hope, I hope his daughter knows how much he loved her. Because he yeah. did. Yeah. And I'm just grateful he, I'm grateful he existed in the world. Do you think the film did a fair job? Like, how did you feel after watching it? Do you feel that they tried to, you know, blame Asia or put her as some sort of villain in this? Or do you think that they were fair to her and just, you know, showed his obsession with her, but also put it on him? And, you know, how do you feel? I think they were pretty fair about it. Um, I, I think it's important to understand his obsession with her and how that was impacting him. Mm-hmm. And how, as she moved away from him, how dark that made him feel and how hopeless that made him feel. Um, like, it's not her job to love him, right? No, That's not, not her responsibility. All. Not at all. If she wanted to move on, she she could have moved on. And, and I feel like she, I feel like the film was pretty objective in their portrayal of her. Mm-hmm. I, I think do. so too. Mm-hmm. I don't think it blamed her. I don't think it whitewashed her. Mm-hmm. I think it showed who she was to him and what mm-hmm. their relationship looked like. I think it showed um I think I think how obsessed he became with the Me Too movement also really impacted him. Well, that was his chance to retroactively protect her. Exactly. Mm-hmm. But also I think much like you going into the darkness of gun violence, I think mm-hmm. he then entered the the darkness of the Me Too movement. Mm-hmm. And again, he he was an he was an equal rights kind of guy, and to yeah. see how women are treated, mm-hmm. I think he just couldn't stomach that. Yeah, yeah. Like I feel like he'd be the last person we'd find out a Me Too thing about. Well, don't forget that his rise to fame was exposing this dark underbelly of the restaurant yeah. uh, industry. Yeah. So that's who he was. He was somebody who exposed the darkest parts of the, the industries world. and things that we have come to love. Yeah. All right, my friend. Um, so that's been Roadrunner. Thank you yes. for doing this with me. My pleasure. I'm so glad you suggested this because A, I'd been meaning to watch it and B, I will never turn down an opportunity to talk about him because I think he's just an extraordinary human. Absolutely. I will be with you again to do Sister Wives this weekend. Yes, you will. I'll be on and my then, bang trip, but and then you you'll go be on your bang holding trip. down the fort. Yeah, I got you. <laughs> I will I will make sure we chat about Sister Wives and the thread and all that mm-hmm. stuff. So all right. I got us. All right, my friend. Thank you, everybody, and we'll talk to you soon. Take care, everyone. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.